This is the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts in them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. Thanks, Kendra. Morning, church. Have you ever had a sinking feeling? I want to tell you about a time that I had a sinking feeling. It was January between the two semesters of my freshman year in college, and I was working construction just to uh, make a little money. You know how expensive it is to be a college freshman, and I was doing construction at a at a site, they were building a truck stop. And they were putting in these 20-foot-tall light poles to light the parking lot. And so what they had to do is dig these deep 5-foot holes to fill with rebar and concrete so they could erect the, the light pole. And my job was inconsequential. I was just cleaning up and tidying up, and they had filled one hole, and they were moving to the next, and so I was cleaning up around one, and I never claimed to be the smartest guy in the room, and so I was just cleaning up and taking step after step until you can guess what happened. I stepped right off backwards into that wet cement, sunk down up to my waist. I could not get out of there fast enough to get my feet back on solid ground. Uh, You can be assured that those guys had a great laugh at my expense. But if you've ever had anything near that kind of experience, you will relate to today's parable. You know, we're going through the parables in our sermons this morning. And today we get the, the, the joy of looking at the parable of the two men who built houses and Uh, If I have not introduced myself to you yet, I'm Jason. I'm one of the pastors here. I have a pleasure to serve you. And as we prepare to look at this parable, will you join me in prayer? God, thank you. Thank you that we have your word. And specifically, as we're studying these parables that Jesus taught, we are thankful for your truths, even as they are told to us in memorable, powerful ways. So would you open our hearts to your word, that we might be transformed and changed for your glory and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we dig into this parable, I want us to think of this big idea, and that is that Jesus is the rock and foundation on which we build our lives. And so thinking along those lines about this parable... Matthew puts this parable at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. 
And uh, if you are familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, you'll know that it starts with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And you'll know that it continues on, the Sermon on the Mount, to be salt and light, to love your enemies, to control your anger, to, uh, to how you give to the needy, and then, of course, the Lord's Prayer is in there. So this sermon is filled with the powerful, good teachings of Jesus Christ. And so then you have, at the end, this, this parable about how you build your life on the foundation, specifically on the foundation of Christ. Now, I used to approach this parable from, from the idea that, well, Jesus has taught all of this important teaching and truth from God. And then he comes to the end, he's like, well, you've heard what I have to say. Take it or leave it. It's your choice. There's two paths before you. The ball's in your court. And that's kind of how this parable reads. But then you put at the end these two verses about how Jesus taught and the authority he had. It says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes, their religious leaders. And so then you start to think, this parable, this really is an issue of submission to the authority of Christ. And we think about Jesus' authority, we need to say, what is my relationship to the authority of Christ? So let's take a a minute and let's look at the authority of Jesus displayed in the Bible. And first of all, Jesus is the Word, the eternally existing Word of God. And as the Scriptures lay out for us, and specifically in the New Testament, we see that all things were created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. This is Jesus, the word of God, power over all. And so this is his authority. And then, of course, we think about that creative power. We also think about the power in other ways Jesus displays his authority. Power over life and death. All through the the Gospels, we see Jesus' power on display to heal, to restore, but then it climaxes with this idea that Jesus has power even to raise the dead. And this is so important because what happens? Jesus dies for our sins. And there would be no hope, the Bible says, if he did not have power over life and death because he rose again to life. He gives us the assurance that death is not the end that our resurrection is sure because of his authority. And of course, this speaks to the victory of Christ. His authority is an authority of victory. That there is not any other ruler or authority that can, that can keep his victory from coming about. And this is a victory 
for us over sin and over the consequences of sin, specifically hell. A victory. And as we go on through this parable, we're going to see that it has kind of an emphasis on the, the suffering of life. So I want us to anchor that also with this understanding that Jesus' authority is not just during suffering, as we're going to see, but it is authority over victory. It's an authority that brings us the, the power of conquering in our life, the power for victory over sin, over death, over suffering. And then, of course, Jesus' authority rests in truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no life apart from the truth of Jesus. And so Jesus' authority, we, we submit to that authority for faithfulness, that Jesus produces in us faithfulness and righteousness by his gospel, Romans 1 says. And then, of course, that we need so much the grace of God that comes to us by the authority of Jesus. God is holy and righteous and pure, and he can have no unclean thing in his presence. He can have no person enter his presence who is a sinner, and every one of us is. And Jesus has been given the authority to bring to us the grace that we need to work in us the forgiveness of our sins, to work in us repentance, and to bring us salvation. And so the question then is, what's our relationship to Jesus' authority? And I feel that's a better way to think about this parable. Now, when we think about this parable in this way, the authority of Christ, his call to us to bring our life into alignment with his truth and his teaching, it's no small thing to consider this. Because this life that Jesus holds out before us, it's not appealing at first. It's opposed to the kind of self-seeking life that both the world would teach us to have and our own flesh would teach us to have. That we are the center of our lives and therefore we are the God of our life. We are the one that sets the direction. But this kind of life Jesus is asking us to submit to is a life that reorders things so we put our focus, our emphasis, and our centering on Christ and not on ourselves. So that's how I think we should approach this parable. But now, if you've, if, as you were listening to that parable, as you've read it before, you'll know there's a lot of talk in there about storms, about rain and floods and winds. And so let's talk about storms. I want to see if you can finish this phrase. Red skies at night, red sky in the morning, exactly. Now, I thought this was just some antiquated saying that really, now that we have the science of meteorology, we can just put that behind us. So I looked it up. And generally, it's a true saying, at least according to the Library of Congress, where I found an article about it. If you disagree, take it out with them. But the point isn't, when you even think about that saying, the point isn't even, will there be storms or won't there be storms? It's about watching for them, because they will come. And that's part of what Jesus is saying. Verse 25, he says, 
And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. And he says the same in verse 27. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. The storms will come. We have this idea. I don't know how we get there as Christians, but sometimes we have this idea that following Jesus means I'm safe. I'm safe from the trouble. I'm safe from the storm. Or at least Jesus will come along quickly and get me out of it. And we're disappointed when we don't see that happening. When we go through a long period of struggle or pain or sorrow or difficulty. And we might be tempted to say, maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe God isn't good. Maybe God can't see me. I'm insignificant. And so as we think about what Jesus is teaching us here, I think it's important to pause and think about what does suffering mean in the life of the believer? And you could call it a theology of suffering, an understanding of God's teaching around suffering. And so first of all, we need to recognize suffering isn't just something unique to us. Now we're in the middle of it, it is unique to us. It's all we think about. It's, it's our, our lives are consumed by what I feel, what I'm going through. But it's not unique to us. Suffering and pain and trouble, they are common to all people. They are shared by all humanity. And we can easily see that. We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 as God is bringing about the consequences of man's original rebellion against God. And God says, this consequence is going to pass down to everyone after. And it's a consequence of hardship, of toil, of sorrow, of grief, and all the pain and suffering that the world now experiences. So that brings us to the second point of this theology of suffering. And that is that suffering is a result of sin, but not always a result of sins. And this is really important to, for us to recognize. Sometimes we get caught up in this idea that I must have done something wrong for God to bring me through this suffering. Or uh, I can pinpoint or find or search out the, my sins or someone else's sins to understand why this is happening to me. Now, the Bible says sometimes that true, that's true. Sometimes God leads us through discipline so that we will confess and, and repent and turn away, turn back to God. But a lot of times it's not true. And the only answer we have is this is part of the overarching judgment that God has against sin in the world and in humanity. And we're just caught up in it. It's just part of God's overarching plan. And so as a way to, to see this in, uh, in a specific instance, you can look at John chapter 9, where this question was brought directly to Jesus. There was a, a blind man that was blind from birth, and Jesus was coming and having the opportunity to heal him. And the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not this man that sinned or his parents, 
but he's blind that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so we clearly see God has an overarching plan that he's working, and the suffering, the pain we go through is because of sin, but not always because of our sins. And then we we find ourselves sometimes in the middle of difficulty, and we're praying for relief. We're praying for healing. We're praying to be brought out of this storm. And, it, and we feel like God's not answering our prayer. And the sorrow goes on. And the difficulty goes on. And we might say, well, what hope do I have? And our faith starts to waver. But the scripture says, God is glorified by our perseverance through suffering. I want to ask you a hypothetical Which do you think brings more glory to God out in the world? For believers never to suffer or for us to suffer and be faithful to God through suffering? And that's what the scripture describes. That we trust our God. That he calls us to believe in him, trust in him through the suffering. And that perseverance he calls us to brings him much glory. And he does promise to rescue us. He promises rescue, if not in this life, assuredly in the life to come. The promise of God is for the good of his people. And one of the places I love to look for the promise of that, the rescue that is coming in this life or the next is 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Where it says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There will be rescue, there will be healing and restoration. And if God so sees, it will be in this life. But our ultimate faith is that it will be in the next, according to God and his grace and power. And then, wrapping up our theology of suffering, maybe one of the the hardest uh, aspects to believe and experience in the moment is that God uses our suffering to grow us if we will allow it to grow us in character, to grow our faith deep so that we will have more and more Christ-like character. In fact, the scripture, the New Testament says, when we suffer, we share in Christ-likeness because he suffered for us. And so if we will, and we're faithful, and we open our lives up to God's shaping, then he will grow us in character. I want to uh, share with you an example of this living out faithfulness through suffering. And I've asked permission to share with you, and some of you may know who I'm talking about. But I've got a friend named Bobby. And uh, every time I visit with Bobby, I'm encouraged, and my heart is touched. See, Bobby has MS. And has been walking the long, difficult journey that that brings in someone's life. Uh, He's been confined to a wheelchair for around a decade now. 
And he's, now, these days, he spends a lot of time in bed. He, he uh, doesn't have a lot of the help he needs to get up and around, and it's painful. And so he spends his time there in bed. And that in itself is a struggle. It's painful. It's difficult. But then you add to that that Bobby has a large family, several kids, and they are growing up. They're getting married. They're having their own children. He loves them deeply, but they live across the country, and he doesn't have the opportunity to go and see them. And so he has to see them from afar. He's got pictures of them pasted up all over his wall so he can, as he's laying there in bed, he can see them and pray for them and be encouraged and overjoyed for his family. But there's that loneliness of being separated. And, of course, the, diff, the physical discomfort. And add to that, Bobby misses the church. He longs to be with the people of God. And on a regular basis to be in fellowship and discipleship and worship. But every time I go to visit Bobby, he speaks of God's goodness and steadfast love to him. He quotes scripture. He he almost seems transfixed, speaking of God and his goodness as relayed in promises through the scripture. And he talks about his love for the church and for God's people. And then he'll speak of his longing to be in the presence of the Savior. He is a living testimony of what it means to have storms crash on your life over and over. But he's built his life on the firm foundation of Christ. Jesus, his rock. And he stands firm in hope and faith and joy. I wonder if you would... Allow us to just take a moment and pray for Bobby. Could you join me in that? God, what a testimony that Bobby is to us. He's not walked an easy life. And currently, God's still walking in that, the suffering that is common to man. But God, you have guided him to drill down his faith into this solid bedrock of Jesus Christ. So we pray for him, that he will be encouraged. He'll be lifted up. He will have those continual um, reminders of your goodness and steadfast love, that his spirit will be buoyed by the hope and joy you give him, that the people of God would love him back the way he loves them. And God, you will answer his prayer for healing in this life or ultimately in the next. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we, we see this parable in all of its complexity up to this point. But then I think the main point of this parable is a warning. This is a parable coming at the end of Jesus' teaching. He knows that there are lots of people, this crowd, listening to him, hearing all these words of truth and power and a way to live life. And he knows that some will not listen. Some will hear And then they'll compare his teaching to the teaching of the religious leaders they've heard all their life. And they will choose to follow the latter. Some will hear and doubt and say, surely this cannot be true. And they will walk away. So Jesus gives this this warning. And this is the the layout of the warning, the way the, the parable reads. First, he gives the positive example. The wise man that built his house on the rock. He says, this is saying, live 
this obedience, live this submission to the power and truth that I'm teaching you. And we see that right there as he says, whoever hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. This is the positive example. And then immediately he goes to the negative example. And this is the weight of the parable. This is where the punch is. He gives the negative example of the foolish man. He says, don't live like this. This is rebellion. This is disobedience. And he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. He's given this warning. And then he says, the results of the warning, he says, there, are, there is destruction if you do not build on the one true rock. Destruction. He says, great was the fall of a man's house that built on the sand. In other words, wake up. See what foundation you're building your life on. And so it's, it's obviously speaking to those who heard him and yet are walking away. But I want, to th- I want us also to think about what about the people who, who heard but were totally oblivious? They heard in passing. Well, the, the result is the same. Destruction. What about the people who never heard? The result is the same. Destruction. But I think in both of those cases, we need to see that there is, there is a reminder there that God has invited us into his mission so that those who heard in passing or those who did not hear at all, we have been invited to take the good news of Jesus to all who will hear so that they too can build their life in faith on Jesus Christ. But now I want to think about maybe more of a group that would fit closer to us. The forgetful. What about those who started to build their foundation on Jesus, but then they walked away? They forgot. Maybe they were enticed by some other aspect of life. Maybe they had built, began to build when they were younger, and as they grew, they grew further and further away from Jesus. I think we need to hear this warning and say, it is never too late to come back to Christ. It is never too late to, to abandon the false foundations and drill down again on Jesus Christ. Within that group, there is a warning to religious people. And these are people like you and me could be sitting in this room every Sunday having the word of Jesus wash over us and yet, for whatever reason, not living in faith, not truly building our lives on the foundation of Jesus because even religious people can be living a life not fully surrendered to Jesus, not with faith in the salvation that comes only through Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. The common temptation is, instead of really repenting, to talk about repentance. Instead of heartily believing, to say, I believe, without believing. Instead of truly loving, to talk of loving without loving. Instead of coming to Christ, to speak about 
coming to Christ and profess to come to Christ, yet not come at all. And this is a warning to us. Are we truly coming to Jesus? Are we truly building down our foundation on him and none alone? And we think, why would religious people do that? Because there are a lot of religious and seemingly good foundations that we are tempted to build on instead. Maybe we're tempted to build on a particular church or denomination or style of church. We say, this is for me. I love my church. I love this. And what we're seeing is we start trusting in our church more than we trust in Jesus. Or maybe it's a set of doctrines or strong convictions. We say, this is truth. and I'm holding on to this and I love learning about it and debating it. And I know the right answers and this is my theology and we forget. Theology is supposed to lead us to Jesus, not be an end in itself. Maybe it is a, it is a style of church that's our programs, either the style of music or the way we do kids or our discipleship groups or whatever we like and say, this is it. I have found a way to live out my faith. And yet that way we somehow divorce from true faith in Jesus. Maybe it's more of a moralistic approach. We say, I build my foundation on doing good. And the church gives me lots of ways to do good and to avoid evil. And the church helps me avoid evil. And those are good things. But we never drill down and say, I can do nothing good to be saved. I can not avoid evil enough for God to accept me because I need Jesus. Maybe we like our leaders Maybe we say, this pastor, this group of leaders, my small group leader, they are the ones that are keeping me strong in my faith. And we don't realize, we don't follow an earthly person. We follow the one shepherd, the only one that can lead us into a firm faith. Because individually and collectively, we will face those storms we talked about. And only the one foundation will stand. All others, religious or not religious, will crumble. And I want to ask her, maybe you're new. Maybe you're new today. Maybe you're new joining us online. Maybe you're new to hearing these truths about Jesus. Maybe you're new to being confronted by Jesus with his authority. And this, this warning that if you go a different way, there's destruction. Maybe that's all new to you. And so the, 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 the call of Jesus is, it's not too late. Come to me. Today can be the day you start to sink down that foundation of faith and you build on Jesus. In case we're tempted to say, I'm really convicted by Jesus and his authority, and so I'm going to do more. I'm going to be better. I can do this. I'm going to pull myself by my bootstraps, and I've got this. We're missing the point. We are missing the point. Here's what James Montgomery Boy says. This does not simply mean that we are to go out and try to be a bit more moral, even if the morality we seek to practice is Christ's. According to Jesus, we cannot have his ethics without himself, but neither can we have him without his ethics. We must build on both. And so in case we're tempted to say, I got this, 
I can build this foundation. But we don't go to the person of Jesus. We've missed the point. Go to the person and let him lead you to follow him with your life through faith. We're going to put up some next steps, some, some ways to think about application and how to examine your life and say what foundation am, um, am I building on. But I'd, I'd really like uh, for your patience as I share how God is teaching me about building on a foundation. And so if you're, with your indulgence, this is a little bit personal. Um, obviously, just like you, God is still teaching me. I have so much to learn about building a life on the foundation of Christ. Over the last year, this is one way God has been teaching me. Uh, for years, I've been uh, struggling with depression. And I can look back in my life all the way to when I was a kid, and I would go through really difficult times of depression. And it, it was getting worse uh, as I've gotten older. And uh, I, I decided it was time to, to see somebody and talk about it. So I went to a counselor, and I was describing what I would go through. Except for, for me, depression was, was, it came in, in waves. It wasn't like a long, steady depression. It would happen in short uh, eight, to, eight days to two weeks uh, at a time. And then quickly I would recover and go back to uh, normal. But then occasionally my emotions would go into a very elevated state, very, uh, a feeling that life was great, nothing wrong could happen. And so as I was talking to my counselor, he said, you know, I think you need to see a psychiatrist because I think this is bipolar disorder. So I went and saw a psychiatrist, and within five minutes of describing my symptoms, he's like, you've got bipolar disorder. And he started me on a very successful treatment, and I'm feeling great, and not having any of the depression for many months now. But in, in the few weeks after I received that diagnosis, I began to look back at my life and, and kind, of, kind of evaluating my life through bipolar disorder. And I, I knew that I had depression, but I never connected the dots about the elevated states. And during the depression, I always turned to God because I was clearly to myself at the end of myself. I knew that I had nothing to stand on in those moments except for God's grace. So the depressive times were actually spiritually healthy times for me. But so were the elevated states. But I began to realize a lot of my profound encounters with God were during the elevated states. And the big decisions that I made for God or with God came during the elevated states. Decisions to go into ministry. Decisions to go to a Christian school. Decisions to immediately as I was entering into adulthood, start serving in a church. Uh, even the decision to move my family from Tennessee here to serve in a church during elevated states. I began to question, was this just the mental illness? That I was in such an elevated state that I felt close to God, that I felt he was speaking to me and leading me. Those actually, more than the depressive times, reviewing my life from that standpoint was was more difficult because I thought it was a mistake 
I thought I was hearing God when I wasn't. But in those moments, those weeks, sitting by the fire pit and just ruminating on what I know to be true about God, um, I just felt him pressing upon me this idea that God is bigger than mental illness. And whether I was having an elevated state or a depressive state, he was still directing my path. That I was still on the solid foundation, regardless of what I was feeling at a moment. And so I appreciate you hearing some of how I am putting this into practice. And my prayer is that you'll have opportunities in your own unique ways to live out this truth. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you for Jesus, our foundation. Thank you also for a warning that we need warnings to say, don't head the wrong direction. So I pray wherever each one of us is in these moments, whether we are in a storm, we've come out of a storm, whether we, uh, life is good, God, would you lead us to this place of faith in the person of Jesus, that we would drill down in faith on him and then have a life lived following him and the way he leads. For those who've yet to do that, God, would you pull them toward Christ, toward grace, toward love, toward restoration. God, we pray all this, even as we turn to the table of the Lord Jesus, would you speak to our hearts. We pray in his name. Amen.